Welcome back to the program. It was Churchill who reminded us that history is written by the victors. Well, this is as true of religious history as it is of military, political, and geopolitical history. Do you ever wonder how our religious and political divides of today came to be? How it is that the Republican Party became a vehicle for the notion of America as a Christian nation? We've all been fed the story that it's somehow part of originalism. We've all been told that America, as conceived by our founders, was John Winthrop's shining city on the hill. That it was a Christian nation, and that even our leaders today seem to succumb to that mythology. But the fact is that the idea of America as a Christian nation is a relatively recent construct. One that came both out of the Cold War and the business opposition to Roosevelt and the New Deal. This unholy alliance between Christianity and the Chamber of Commerce would continue to shape our politics and government right on up till today. Joining me today to tell this story is my guest, Kevin Cruz. He's a professor of history at Princeton. He's the author or co-editor of four previous books, including the award-winning White Flight. And it is my pleasure to welcome Kevin Cruz here to talk about his new book, One Nation Under God, How Corporate America Invented Christian America. Kevin Cruz, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you here. When we look at this notion of of one nation under God, and even think of it in a contemporary context, we only we, we can go back to Lincoln though to the Gettysburg Address and and find these words there. Talk about that. All right, that's where the the phrase uh, "one nation under God" comes from. Although Lincoln meant it in a slightly different way, uh, he, and he had a line about how uh, praying that this nation uh, under God uh, will, will flourish, and it was it was more kind of a, a God willing, not a not, not a sense of a of, of God ruling the country, but you know it was, it was almost a. Uh, like inshallah uh, in, in, uh, in, in the um, Muslim tradition, uh, but yeah. So these these phrases, some of them do come from the 19th century, but as you noted in your introduction, um, uh, they don't have quite the power that we think they do uh, in the 19th and, and 18th century. Uh, the religious language uh, uh, that gets vested with so much power in the 20th century um, isn't quite as, as as rooted deeply in our our, our tradition as we think. One of the things that you talk about is that after Lincoln used that phrase, that the idea of it, the notion that he talked about, kind of went into remission for a long time. That's right. It's really it's the idea of of a nation under God or freedom under God uh, is really the earliest form. Uh, really, gets underway in the 30s. Uh, after L- Lincoln's phrase, uh, it it. it it largely vanishes. Uh, it, it, it comes back uh, really in the 1930s and on. And it really became a kind of post-war religious revival. Talk a little bit about how it got started. Well, the post-war religious revival has a, has a number of, of roots. Um, uh, in many ways, I think there's a, uh, you know, a, a desire to, uh, to pray during the, the crisis of, of the Depression in World War II. You see a slight uptick in religion, but it's really a massive national campaign uh, that takes root uh, really at the start with Eisenhower urging a, a national religious revival. Uh, ministers like Billy Graham, uh, Abraham Veraday, James Fifield, uh, they're all kind of pushing for a greater degree of religion in public. It's one in which uh, corporate America really plays a, a strong hand. So everything from uh, Madison Avenue engaging in a, in a massive ad campaign to promote religion and American life, to Hollywood, uh, the, some of the major blockbuster films of the era were biblical epics, uh, like the movie The Ten Commandments. So there's a there's a broad effort in the 50s to uh, encourage Americans to get religion, and, and and by and large they do. Church membership, which had been as low as uh, you know in the, in the mid 19th century, 18 percent 
uh, of Americans formerly belonged to a church in 1850. In the early 20th century, the numbers creep up into the 30s and 40s. Uh, but in the post-war period, it shoots up, and by the end of the 1950s, 69% of Americans claim membership in a church or synagogue, which is an all-time high. So there's a sudden uh, and incredible religious revival that takes place in the 1950s here. How much of it had to do with the Cold War and this battle against what people talked about and perceived as godless communism at the time? Well, some of it definitely did. Uh, uh, the conventional wisdom among historians, uh, the, the story that I, I had always been told, was that all of these uh, religious changes that take place in the 50s, the addition of under God to the pledge in 1954, the adoption of and God We Trust as a national motto in 1956, the creation of the National Day of Prayer, the National Prayer Breakfast, all of these things that happened in the 50s, uh, that they were solely the result of the Cold War. As America geared up to fight uh, the godless communists of the Soviet Union, Americans naturally found religion at home as a way to play up the differences. Uh, and there's a slight element of that that's true. Uh, on the surface, I do think the Cold War helps bring a variety of Americans together around this religious uh, ideology. Uh, but the language itself, uh, the, the politics of this, uh, the behind-the-scenes story of all this, is one that uh, I found in this book stretches back uh, much further than the Cold War. It stretches back into the 1930s, uh, and it really is a fight, uh, ultimately, against the New Deal state uh, that sparks all this. Talk a little bit about how this got started in opposition to the New Deal, and along with it, this sense of individualism and libertarianism that really went hand in hand with it. Well, it starts uh, uh, as a campaign uh, uh, to push back against the New Deal, and it starts in the hands of big business. Uh, they had felt uh, on the defensive after the, uh, the great crash of 29, and more importantly, when the New Deal launches the regulatory state and, and empowers uh, labor unions, uh, really for the first time uh, in industry. So as industrial leaders uh, are on the defensive, they, they push back first with a massive public relations campaign. Uh, the National Association of Manufacturers increases its PR budget by 22 times uh, over just a three-year span. I mean, they're pouring millions of dollars into this. And their early efforts are very straightforward. They're just trying to sell the American people on the essential goodness of capitalism. Uh, so they're kind of pay-ons to free enterprise. Uh, the problem is, is that the American public, uh, in the depths of the Depression, is not willing to listen to stories about how great big business is. Uh, and more importantly, they see that this is a story of big business spending money to tell the country how great big business is. Uh, Jim Farley, the head of the Democratic Party, says one of these groups, the American Liberty League, ought to be known as the American Cellophane League, because first, it's a DuPont product, and second, you can see right through it. Uh, so people uh, believe that uh, this is just business looking out for itself. So businessmen go back to the drawing board, uh, and they're, they're quite explicit about this in their, in their uh, private letters and even some of their public speeches. They say, uh, we need to get this message out. Who can we trust uh, to make this message? More importantly, who do Americans trust uh, when they hear messages like this? And they say, well, polling shows ministers are the most trusted people in America, so therefore uh, we need to get ministers to make the case for free enterprise. And that's exactly what they do starting uh, in the mid-30s. And one of the earliest ministers that they brought into this was this guy, James Fifield in Los Angeles. Talk about him. Fifield is a senior minister at First Congregational Church, which is uh, at the time uh, the richest church uh, in, uh, in Los Angeles, and actually the, the most um, uh, powerful Congregationalist church in the, in the, in the, in the nation. 
Uh, and he's literally preaching to pews filled with millionaires uh, and winds up telling them what they want to hear, which is that uh, uh, their wealth is a sign of God's favor. Um, uh, the labor unions and the new dealers who are meddling in their business are meddling with the natural state of affairs. Uh, Fifield hadn't been the, the first one to equate Christianity and capitalism, but he, he really perfects those arguments uh, in, this, in this church. He, he tells them, and he, he writes in his books, both capitalism and Christianity are based on the idea that the individual will rise or fall on his or her own merits. So in capitalism, the, 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 the worthy make a profit. Those who aren't worthy, uh, they go to the poorhouse. In Christianity, the worthy rise to heaven. Uh, those who aren't worthy fall to hell. Uh, so any system of government that meddles with this natural, divinely prescribed order of things is, he says, a form of pagan statism. Uh, so he not only links capitalism and Christianity together, but he links them in opposition to the New Deal state. Uh, and it's a, it's a form of politics that uh, one of his detractors uh, calls a, a Christian libertarianism. I think that's an apt, uh, an apt label for it, because it's all about putting these traditional libertarian arguments, which had traditionally not had much to do with religion, uh, and, and put a religious spin on them so that they become appealing to ministers, and ministers can then spread this message uh, to, their, to their congregations and to the nation as a whole. They also flipped it around in the negative with respect to Roosevelt and the New Deal with this idea of a social gospel that they were rejecting. That's right, that's right. And a lot of this is a reaction to what Roosevelt had been doing. Roosevelt, we, we forget, used religion uh, uh, intensely in his speeches, uh, usually to announce his opponents. Uh, he makes a speech when he's uh, governor of New York, and it's on the dry topic of, of privatizing water utilities. But he says, uh, uh, today I preach from the Old Testament, and my sermon is, thou shalt not steal. Uh, in his uh, first inaugural address, he talks about how the bankers have been um, have been uh, uh, removed from power, and he calls them the money changers, and they've been driven from the temple. His first inaugural address is so full of religious references, in fact, that the National Bible Press puts out a chart linking all the different passages of Scripture that he's referenced in this to, to the text of the inaugural address, so people can kind of uh, link uh, his words up with uh, the Bible at home. Uh, so, and and in this, he's he's basically. Uh, um, uh, propagating uh, 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 and putting kind of political muscle behind what had been known as the social gospel, this idea that um, uh, liberal Protestants had, had embraced in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, which is that uh, Christ's uh, uh, teachings uh, have a political resonance, uh, and they have a, 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 a liberal uh, a, a politics behind them. And so uh, good Christians need to be involved in the world around them. They need to care for the poor in the world around them. They need to get the government to adopt policies that, um, uh, before the New Deal, were kind of the, the rudimentary origins of a welfare state. And that is God's will. And so these Christian libertarians are really pushing back against Roosevelt, but also this broader tradition on the left uh, among clergymen of this social gospel. There were a number of advocacy groups that then grew out of this as far as religious groups were concerned, including this Committee to Proclaim Liberty that really was the, the central one. Talk about that. Well, the Committee to Proclaim Liberty is an offshoot of the organization that James Fifield, that minister I just spoke about, does, and his organization is called Spiritual Mobilization. And they wound up putting out uh, you know, a, a monthly magazine, a weekly radio show, to get this message of Christian libertarianism out there. And their central 
theme becomes this phrase that Fifield promotes called freedom under God, as opposed to slavery under the welfare state. Well, in 1951, uh, they decide uh, that a good way to promote this would be to have a, a national series of celebrations for the 4th of July centered around that theme of freedom under God. Uh, and so they form this Committee to Proclaim Liberty. Uh, and it's, uh, it's headed up by two notable conservatives, former President Herbert Hoover, uh, who'd been you know, driven from the White House by Franklin Roosevelt, and General Douglas MacArthur, who had just a month before they get organized had been removed from his command in Korea. So it's these two conservative martyrs are, are leading this, this group. And there are a series of conservative figures um, uh, from politics, media, uh, uh, on and on. Uh, the biggest force in this committee to proclaim liberty, though, are leaders of big business. Uh, so household names uh, like uh, Henry Luce, Fred Maytag, uh, 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 Eddie Rickenbacker from uh, Eastern Airlines, Charles Wilson from General Motors, uh, Harvey Firestein, uh, Firestone, uh, on and on and on, uh, are big names in, 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 in business, the heads of General Motors, uh, uh, U.S. Steel, on and on, are supporting this group called the Committee to Proclaim Liberty. Uh, and they organize these Fourth of July celebrations. Uh, and they're everything from uh, local uh, op-eds that the, uh, uh, the, uh, they send the editors of local papers that are pre-done and they just need to run them. They have a, a sermon competition where local ministers can preach on this theme of freedom under God uh, and make these kind of anti-New Deal attacks. Uh, and, and compete for cash prizes and, 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 and other prizes. Uh, the biggest event, though, is a, a massive coast-to-coast -coast radio, radio celebration that takes place on the Sunday before the 4th of July. Uh, it's organized by Cecil B. DeMille. Uh, the master of ceremonies is Jimmy Stewart. It features Lionel Barrymore, Bing Crosby, uh, a radio address from General, General Matthew Ridgway, all the way from commanding American troops in Korea. Uh, it's this massive program that gets carried nationwide on the radio uh, to promote these values of freedom under God, uh, again, as opposed to the slavery of the New Deal state. So it's a massive undertaking, and it helps get this language of, of freedom under God out there into the general public. One of the other things that they do is use the preamble of the Declaration of Independence in, in a pretty interesting way. That's right. So so as they promote this uh, uh, these... Um, uh, this Freedom Under God celebration for July 4th, they run ads in local newspapers across the country, and, and they're, they're largely done by local utility companies. Uh, and, and in these ads, they, uh, they take a theme of this Committee to Proclaim Liberty, which is they're going to encourage Americans to recite the preamble to the Declaration. Uh, and just the preamble, um, uh, um, partially because that's the most lyrical part of the document. Um, um, most importantly, it has the phrase about how uh, our rights come from the Creator, which is what they want to argue. Again, our freedoms come from God. Our rights come from the Creator. Uh, but they only do the preamble because the rest of the Declaration of Independence uh, is not a libertarian document. Uh, it's not just calling uh, for, for no government. It's not casting off the crown. A lot of the complaints that the colonists bring uh, to King George III are about a lack of functioning government. They want you know, uh, regular assemblies. They want uh, 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 representation. They want, um, um, you know, local juries. They want all these kinds of, of actual functioning government in their lives. And so it's not a libertarian manifesto, but these liber Christian libertarians have to lop off that ending. 
But then these ads that these utility companies run promoting to get Americans to preach the, the Declaration of Independence to recite it, um, they have a kind of a, an annotated version where they preach through about how this is really a, a libertarian government and how Americans essentially need to, in the words of one of these, um, make their own Declaration of Independence now in 1951, declare that no government is responsible for you, uh, only responsible to you, uh, and so you don't need anything from the government at all, and you need to kind of cast off this this New Deal state that had been begun by Roosevelt and was at the time still being continued by Truman. Talk about the business leaders, you touched on that before, who really were all in on this, including leaders of the Chamber of Commerce and some of the biggest CEOs in the country. They really do uh, embrace this because they've been looking for a way to, to push back against the New Deal. And it's no accident that the, the major corporations that, that fund these groups are ones that are really struggling with the role of the aggressive new voice that labor has taken in the 1930s. So the major companies in steel, uh, auto, uh, electric, uh, 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 a lot of kind of industrial uh, uh, business organizations like the National Association of Manufacturers is heavily involved in this. And they are because it's their businesses that are taking the brunt of this kind of uh, this, this newly empowered uh, labor politics that's 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 been uh, launched by the New Deal, and so they're uh, they actively push back against this, uh, and they 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 fund uh, against the tune of um, millions of dollars in the end. They they fund these organizations on the ground uh, to try to push back uh, against the New Deal state, however they can, to discredit it, to make it. Uh, to, to be a form of what they call pagan statism, uh, that this isn't natural, this is in fact uh, ultimately the devil's work. And this effort to really equate Christianity and capitalism was really the pinnacle of this. That's right. And again, others had, had linked Christianity and capitalism before them and, and what after them. What's really unique in this moment is the way they pair them as political soulmates uh, that are aligned against uh, uh, the federal government. Uh, and so, so this is where that libertarian uh, strand comes in. And this would really give rise, as we talked about before, the Cold War attitudes came in and McCarthyism came in, and it would really help feed this new conservatism that would come along that would include people like Barry Goldwater and Bill Buckley and Ronald Reagan. That's absolutely right, yeah. A lot of those figures uh, uh, really kind of mobilize uh, out of this tradition, uh, and, and so Eisenhower um, helps bring this religious language in, but these, these libertarian impulses are, are, are still there in the background, and, and, and they, these two politics have been fused in the hands of those, those other men in the 60s. It's interesting that the only politician of that period on, on the Republican side that really didn't seem moved by this was Nixon. I think not personally moved, but but Nixon clearly uh, he clearly sees the value of this. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, maybe that's why he he, he fails at it. Uh, he you know he had been vice president under Eisenhower. He had literally had a front row seat to many of these developments: the the National Day of Prayer, the National Prayer Breakfast. He's at uh, he's with Eisenhower in the in the Oval Office when they sign a document that proclaims that the government of the United States of America is based on the twenty third Psalm. Uh, so he's, he's, he's taking part in this. When he becomes president, he tries to recreate it. He, he brings Billy Graham in for, um, uh, to give church services in the White House uh, and, and to lead rallies outside of their regular church services led by other ministers in the East Room of the White House. Uh, Graham is a constant advisor, and it's Nixon's effort to 
rebuild what Eisenhower had done, where Graham had also played a serious role. The problem is that, and maybe this is because he's not a true believer, Nixon doesn't, um, uh, he executes it in a, in, a, in a clumsy way. It's much more partisan. It clearly becomes something that is just being done to mobilize conservatives uh, on the right uh, and helps drive liberals away. Which, and when Eisenhower brought liberals and conservatives together around this language, Nixon really makes it uh, a province of the right alone. Talk about the ways in which the law and legal scholars at the time tried to incorporate this as well, and we're still dealing with it in terms of the Supreme Court. Yeah. Legal scholars, and this is the story I had always gotten when I, when I started this project, uh, basically say this doesn't matter. Uh, all of this religious language and politics doesn't matter. Uh, there's a, a, a speech that uh, Yale Law School Dean Eugene Rostow gives in 1962 after the Supreme Court strikes down um, state-mandated programs of school prayer, in which he says, these things like one nation under God and in God we trust, these are what he calls ceremonial deism. And I think it's an apt phrase. He meant the deism part, uh, and that it's never a reference uh, in this public religion. It's never a reference to Jesus Christ. It's a much more vaguely drawn deity. It's always God, sometimes maybe the Almighty, uh, the Supreme Being. Uh, and so it's, it's drawn in a way in which um, it's not solely a, 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 a Christian deity, and it can be embraced by uh, a variety of faiths, or at least for the 50s, it can be embraced by Protestants, Catholics, and Jews alike. The deism part, uh, I think, is clear. The ceremonial part, uh, he meant in a different way than I would take it. He meant ceremonial, and this is how the courts have taken it ever since, in that it was purely ornamental. Uh, ceremonial in that it didn't matter. There was no substance to it. It was just an empty, an empty ritual. Um, and that's how the courts have taken it. Uh, when people have challenged things like under God and the Pledge, uh, or in God We Trust, they've said uh, these, these aren't violations of the First Amendment. They're following uh, earlier uh, uh, court decisions on this, including the one on school prayer, singled out those things as something that was not being touched by this decision. I, however, found out very quickly in, in researching this book that those things are ceremonial uh, in a different way. Uh, ceremonies are important to ordinary Americans. Uh, you know, we live by symbols, sure, but we live by ceremonies as well. And what I found when I dug into the papers of Justice Hugo Black, uh, who had written that Supreme Court decision that Rostow was responding to on, on school prayer, I found 10 boxes of angry, angry letters. Uh, and hundreds, if not thousands of these letters invoked this religious language of one nation under God and God we trust. You know, how can you say we shouldn't have school and prayer? It doesn't our Pledge of Allegiance say one nation under God? How can we not have prayer in school? Aren't we uh, a nation who says, in God we trust? Uh, and so I found out that these mottos and slogans that I'd always been told had no real political power were, in fact, incredibly powerful. They had the force of a constitutional amendment in the eyes of most Americans. So, um, uh, again, lawyers and, and the courts still hold that these things don't really have substance, and you can't be um, uh, affected by them. But uh, I think I've, I found out, uh, and I, I, I try to show in the book, uh, that these things have incredible power, uh, and we've just ignored it for, for, I think, far too long. Well, the religious aspect of this is still very much a part of the equation in our national political conversation. Is it your sense that we are getting to the perigee of the point at which religion and business are joined at the hip the way they have been? I think it's a relationship that's constantly changing. Uh, and what we're seeing now is that uh, 
the arguments I talk about in the book, which are purely made in the realm of politics, arguments along the lines of a corporation can have religious beliefs, a corporation should be exempt from the regulatory state because of those religious beliefs. Uh, those arguments have been made in politics in the 30s and 40s, but the, the courts are now starting to listen to them. So you look at the Hobby Lobby decision, mm-hmm. or you look at the, the proponents of that Indiana religious freedom law, uh, uh, you're starting to see a belief that, that this does have some real legal basis, which you, you hadn't before. So in that way, the union between uh, 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 religion and, uh, and business has become very tight. At the same time, we're seeing, I think, a new fracture here uh, to go back to the, uh, the religious liberty laws in, in Indiana and Arkansas. We saw major corporations come out against those. Um, you know, so uh, Walmart, uh, you know, a, a deeply religious uh, a family behind Walmart, uh, uh, who's kind of worn their religion on their sleeve, came out against uh, what was essentially going to be a ban on gay marriage there because uh, they felt it was going to hurt their profits. So in some ways, the interest of uh, religion and, uh, and businesses are, are diverging. So they're, they're kind of constantly in a state of flux. We're in a very interesting moment now. Uh, my problem is, as an historian, my, uh, my professional training is in hindsight. So uh, <laughs> I'm not sure, I'm not sure I can speculate more. Kevin Cruz, his book is One Nation Under God, How Corporate America Invented Christian America. Kevin, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. Appreciate it. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 